Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Ladies and gentlemen, I wanted to provide a quick context for my next interview. You will hear my conversation with Orb Greenwald, my dear friend and my swim coach. We sat in his backyard by the pool exactly a week after the memorial for his beloved wife, Cory. Cory died from cancer two months ago. It is an emotional interview for both him and for me, but it's a well-worthy listen. Without further ado... So you currently train and coach swimming in the Special Warfare Program at Lackland Air Force Base, and you have a long list of accomplishments, which are very impressive. In 1967, 1968, and 69, you were three-time All-American water polo champion in University of California in Berkeley. You represented the United States in the 1975 World Modern Pentathlon Championship and won silver medal. You won the military championship in 1973 and national championship in 1975. You were the member of the U.S. Olympic team in 1976 and team gold medalist in the military championships in Stockholm. And this year you're going to the Aqua Bike World Championship in Denmark. Yes. Is, is that it or is there something else that I'm, that I'm not mentioning? And I'm the co- swim coach of Anya. And you're you're my swim coach, and and I joke about it that I, you, I'm probably your most profound swimming failure. <laughs> no, because when you started, remember you couldn't swim 25 meters without stopping. Yeah. So and when so finished up, you could swim 3,000, easy. Yeah. So so I do have a story that I have to share. I sign up for half Ironman, and I barely could swim. And I am pretty decent runner, and I'm I'm okay on the bike, but I really have poor swimming skills. So. I remember our friend, our mutual friend, Dale Landis introduced us. He's, he's an amazing massage therapist here in San Antonio. He said, why don't you go talk to Orb? You know, he may be able to help you. So I came to you. You said, get in the pool and do a lap. I said, okay, I did a lap. Okay, do another one. I did a lap. And then you said, okay, I'll see you tomorrow at 5.20 <laughs> a.m. <laughs> do you remember this? I do. Yeah. Uh, and so... And you started training me, and you didn't ask a lot of questions. You just said, get in the pool and let's do this. Uh, and this was a very different approach from everybody else. You're very much kind of hands-on, just get in the pool, let's do this, let's do this together. And, and, I'll, and I'll instruct you every, every step of the way, or every stroke of the way. <laughs> so, um, that's, and that's how we, we met. And then you've been just an amazing friend and great coach and a great supporter. And, and we bike together. And, and we trained the two Air Force majors at together that swam English Channel. We did, yeah. <laughs> you, were support, you were team support out there in the lake 
yeah. early in the morning out yeah. in Burning Lake. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know things that you taught me, like how to put on a wetsuit when you swim, right? <laughs> so. Well, I've been the swim coach there for 15 years, training what's now called the Special Warfare students who will go on to become special operators, either combat controllers, pararescuemen, tactical air party controllers. And, and you've been in the same location for the last 15 years. Tell me a little bit about your job. Um, what does it entail? It means for the different career fields, we do things a little bit differently and we train the students at whatever level they're at. So if they go into the basic combat control selection course, we train them in surface swimming techniques so they can pass an evaluation at the end of two weeks. Pararescue men go through an eight-week training program where they have evaluations every week. So the training is more intense and it's longer because their first evaluation in swimming is 500 meters. At the end of eight weeks, they have to swim 3,000 meters. Combat controllers only have to do 500 meters. So it's pretty intense during those two weeks. So I designed the, the swimming programs for those different career fields. And pretty much once they're in place, they're pretty simple. I mean, a monkey could pretty much do it because they're all written down, and that's what a lot of what pararescue does. I wrote those workouts a long time ago. They've been modified a little bit since, but they're basically the same. Then we have students that are called um, setbacks or students awaiting training that we're keeping them in shape to go on to combat control school or students have been set back to go back into pararescue or combat control. So they get maintained, but not a lot of real strenuous training. We just try to keep them at a level or if they were a swim failure, then we really work on improving their swimming skills in both freestyle and what we call side kicking or leading arm, trailing arm. At how many hours a day do they spend swimming? Each program will spend at least an hour swimming and then they'll do about an hour of also what's called water confidence training. Learning how to swim underwater, mask and snorkel recovery, buddy breathing, equipment recovery. So just basic water confidence skills, treading water. So since the, the time that you've been there for 15 years, do you, would you say that there is any change in the students that you've seen? They're about the same. We have huge attrition. You know, it's anywhere from 80 to maybe 95%, depending on the class. So we get a lot of students that aren't qualified. They get told the wrong thing. They get misled about what's going to happen here, the intensity of the training. So many of them come here unprepared physically. And then when we get into the mental part of the, the game, they'll quit. This isn't what they signed up for. So the harassment um, is just too much for some of them. Mm. We're kind of jumping straight into this, but I'm really curious, and I know we've had this discussion. I asked you before, what is the difference between students who make it and who don't make it? And, and you had actually a pretty good answer. You said there you know, a couple of things. Do you remember what you told me? That's the will to win. Guys that have that killer instinct you're not actually going to go out and kill something, but that killer instinct, the drive to, to, to be the best, to not fail, those are the ones that will make it. It doesn't so much matter your athletic background. Some wrestlers do really well. Some elite swimmers, which we've had, don't make it at all. 
We had a guy by the name of Paul Ridgeway a few years ago who was second to Michael Phelps in the short course nationals in 2006. He was a several time All-American swimmer at University of Texas, which has the premier swimming program in the country right now. He didn't make it. Hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter so much on your athletic ability, it's on your, your will to survive and fight and win another day. Why do you think some people have it and others don't? What is it about that, that instinct? That's interesting. You can take these guys and you can give them the skills. You can teach them how to swim. You can teach them how to swim underwater. You can teach them how to scuba dive. You can teach them how to use their weapons and all of the things that they need in their various career fields. But you can't teach them the will to win, the drive to fight to go another day. I think that's something you either have or you don't have. I, don't, I can't teach you how to be that warrior on the battlefield. I think that's what you bring to the party. Hmm. Can we can develop that? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, where maybe a student didn't know he had that, and going through the training, I think he can develop it. But he brought that. That's not that's not part of the curriculum. We're going to teach you how to be a combat controller that's going to rain hell down on everybody. Mm-hmm. That's we don't teach that. Mm-hmm. Do you know right away? Do you feel like you have a pretty good instinct about who is going to make it or not? No. Once you watch them watch their training, you see their demeanor, their attitude, you can pretty much pick the ones that are going to make it. Not always, but most of the time. Um, as they get into a few days of training, just how they handle the pressure, uh, you know, they come out of basic training and it's like they left their common sense there. <laughs> they, they can't think for themselves anymore. And that's true of most of the guys except the cross trainees, the older ones. The younger ones, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, it's like there's certain procedures that we go through and they show up the next day and they forget because they're so afraid of screwing up. That fear of failure is really big with them. How do you counteract that? I mean, I guess they all come in wanting to succeed, right? They all come in, they all, all want to do absolutely best. They probably prepared for this. How do we help them? I don't think that's true anymore. A lot of them come in and they find out this isn't what they signed up for. Oh, I see. They know that right away. And this, we have a, it's called Battlefield Airman Training Group. And when they go to a place called BA Prep, that's a special new eight-week course designed to help them get either through the selection, combat control selection course, or pararescue indoc. And after eight weeks of that, a lot of them say, well, I don't want to go to another eight weeks at indoc. So they get burned out. It wasn't what they wanted to do. So they quit. It's called SIE, Student Initiated Elimination. Many of them are gone. Mm-hmm. Because when they get here and find out that the recruiter misled them, or it was too difficult, or they want to do something else, or they got involved with a girlfriend, or they did something stupid with drugs or alcohol, those are big eliminations still. Something interesting, actually, when I was here last week, uh, I chatted with one of your friends, and he's mentioned this also, that a lot of failures have to do with guys not being fully in, and one of the things that become a distraction is developing relationship, you know, dating somebody. Is that your experience also? Yes, and on the other hand, we have guys come in that are married, Mm -hmm. and they do quite well. They're in a stable relationship. The wife supports them. You know, which is a smart thing to do. If you're not supporting your husband in 
what he wants to do in life, you're, you're setting yourself up for a bad marriage. So the smart women figure that out and they will support them. And I know some really happily married couples that have, the guys have come through here, and many of them have been honor grads. You know, they're outstanding students. It's the guy that has the girlfriend back home um, and he misses her. We had a case probably in 2005. He's from Colorado, he went home for Christmas exodus, found out that his best friend was dating his girlfriend became very distraught, bought a one-way ticket to Acapulco and committed suicide. Wow. So extreme cases like that happen. Wow. But many of them will just quit. You know, I got to go and be with my girlfriend. And then there's other people that have, uh, you know, death in the family, grandparents, especially with kids this age. Um, some of them are affected and some of them just push right on through. Those are the guys that make good operators. They can handle the uh, effects of those personal losses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why did I get it? Why My did brother didn't get as much. I don't know. I, it was something that just happened for me. It's one of the things I was blessed with in life, I think. Yeah, let's shift gears. And I, I really want to ask you about this. I mean, you're quite an accomplished athlete. Really, it's a, it's a privilege to know you and to be trained by you. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and I know your brother was also a water polo player. Very good one. Very good one, and he ended up not becoming as successful as you are. And from what I understood, maybe last Saturday speaking to him, maybe he was on some level better water polo player? He was on a team in junior college that had an undefeated season, and that's almost unheard of at that level. And his team and one of his former coaches and my coach were a few years ago in, inducted into the College Hall of Fame for having an undefeated season. He was good at, at that level, at the college level. He was pretty good. He was a goalie. I mean, he was an outstanding goalie, but he wasn't a, a very good swimmer. That's why he was in the, what we call in the cage in the goal. But Gene, great guy, career in law enforcement, doesn't have that drive to the same level that I do. Why? I don't know. We came out of the same place. Is there any difference that you can think of? He was the second child. Um, my dad expected a lot from me. He was a very staunch German, a strict disciplinarian. When I screwed up, he took his belt off and came after me. <laughs> Looking back, you know, I don't think it affected me adversely. That's just the way he disciplined me. <laughs> Gene didn't push like I did, so he didn't get the belt. And I was always pushing the, the envelope, pushing him, pushing him. Your dad? Yeah. And that's, I think, where I got my drive to succeed in whatever, sports. Was your dad encouraging those? I mean, that sounds what we would today call abusive. No, he was a, he was a good athlete. He played football and ran track in college. and. Because of the depression, he wasn't able to pursue his athletic career. He would have qualified for the Olympic trials, I think, in 1928 or 32, somewhere in there. But because he had to go to work due to the depression to support his family, he couldn't continue to train. But his mother and father never, ever saw him compete, not once. He never missed a game. He never missed a baseball game. Your game. My games. My water polo games or swim meets. My dad was always there. So he, he really supported you? Oh yeah, he went out of his way to be there. And my mom too. 
And your mom too. Yeah, my mom was my number one cheerleader, and then Cordy was my next number That's one right. cheerleader. Yeah. Do you think that made a big difference, that they were so supportive? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, you know, when you do something, and you look up in the stands and you see your parents grinning and hooping and hollering and clapping, yeah, it reinforces that you did something good. And I think one of the, the basic drives that men have is from the time they're little boys is they ask a question. And the question is, am I good enough? Am I good enough to make the team? Am I good enough to win the girl? Am I good enough to whatever it is, guys? And that's the... The operators I work with, they're young guys, they're still asking the question, they're still insecure, they still wonder if they're good enough. So their egos are in the way a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. You've seen that, you've been around them. Mm -hmm. You know, and on the other hand, what do the girls ask? The girls, when they're, since they're little girls, they want to know, you know what that question is? They're asking, am I pretty? Mm -hmm. Am I acceptable? Mm -hmm. You know, am I pretty? That's what the girls want to know. Mm -hmm. So. The guys always ask that question. Not the girls that I train. <laughs> well, when you're little girls, you're, mommy, am I pretty? Girls want to know if they're desirable. Yeah. You know, look at the cosmetic business. I mean, yeah. it wouldn't be that way if women didn't want to be desirable to men or whoever they want to be desirable to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So did you get a scholarship to go to University yes. of Berkeley? I had an athletic scholarship. Athletic scholarship. Um, and I know a little bit, but but I'll let you I'll let you tell the story. So you were recruited because you played the water polo essentially, and swam. And swam. I got recruited to do both. Okay. Um, and then how did you end up qualifying for Olympics and becoming an active duty? You were intelligence well, officer in the army. Vietnam was going at that time when I was in college, and the draft was still on. So my mom and dad are both World War II veterans. They encouraged me to get into ROTC, so I said, sure. So I was, got into a four-year Army ROTC program. It was interesting for me, at, being at Berkeley at that time, I was on an athletic scholarship in ROTC and lived in a fraternity house. Not your typical Berkeley student. But it worked. I got my commission as a military intelligence officer. Back then, my Did you want to become an intelligence officer? Yes. Yeah. How come? It just appealed to me. You know, uh, so I was second in my class. I excelled in military science. That was my minor, and I think I got all A's. I liked that. The guy who was the honor graduate just ahead of me chose infantry. Well, we didn't think anybody in their right mind would want to be an infantry officer. But my branch did not have a basic officer course then. So when I graduated, I went on active duty on April Fool's Day, April 1st, 1971. I went to Fort Benning, and I was trained to be an infantry platoon leader. So I'm thinking, uh-oh, I'm going to Vietnam. Then my branch got involved, and they took me out to Fort Huachuca and put me in a, I think it was a 12-week military intelligence training program where we learned how to be counterintelligence agents, among other things. From there, I was doing an assignment out in Southern California, plain clothes assignment, and I found out about modern pentathlon, got my commander to release me, get me orders to come down here to Fort Sam for a 90-day tryout. At that time, you had to, you got 90 days to run and swim to a certain standard. If you made those times, then you got to train in horseback riding, fencing, and shooting. So I made the times and began training 
and was pretty successful. And you stayed then your entire time? Most of my military career on active duty, I was only on active duty for six years, was here at Fort Sam. When I left here, that's when I got into the Guard and Reserve and eventually retired from the Iowa Army National Guard, mm -hmm. where I was the state physical fitness officer. And as you were in active duty and continued to be a Guard and Reserve, you continued to train and participate? Yeah, so I put, yeah, and I put 23 years in, in the military, but still always trained. I mainly ran just to stay in shape. Then when I did started doing pentathlon, you work so hard at doing those five sports, I made a vow that I would never get out of shape. I've looked at a lot of my contemporaries, they didn't do that. During the times when you were preparing for the Olympic Games, for the trials, what was your training regimen like? Five sports, and most people may not know what, what they, these are, but what was your regiment like? In the summertime down here, you know, it's hot and humid, so we have the horses. So the horses got preference in the summer that we rode early in the morning. We would have to be in the saddle at 7. And then we would train. It's a modified jumper course. So we would ride different courses, ride different horses. We did horse shows to improve our riding skills. We rode hunters and jumpers. So the morning started with a ride, and the ride probably lasts an hour, hour and 20 minutes. Then depending on your level, we would go to the swimming pool and swim. After that, in the afternoon, there would be a fencing lesson or round-robin fencing with the other competitors. Be at the shooting range for an hour and run late in the afternoon. So we didn't do all five sports every day, but a lot of days. I remember getting up, being on a horse at 7, and not being done training in the fencing cell until 8 or 9 at night. Wow. So they were long days, but... It was something that the guys that were here liked it. I mean, we loved it. I mean, that was what we wanted to do. How many guys were in the team? Well, back then, because the military had the draft, we had a lot of guys training. They don't have nearly as many training today as they did back then. So we would have, oh, 30, 40 guys at the training center all the time, officers and enlisted. Mm -hmm. And they were from all the services. There was Marines, mainly Army, Navy, and there were several Air Force participants as well. Only men, I presume, I have no, to ask. <laughs> um, the Lady Modern Pentathlon started in somewhere, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. In fact, one of the girls was on, Sharon Sander, who was a good lady triathlete, mm -hmm. was on the Olympic team, I think, somewhere early 90s. She made the team. So men compete against men and the women compete. It's not combined. It's ladies to ladies and men to men, but both are Olympic sports. And how many years did you do that kind of an intense training every day? From 1972 up until 1980. Eight years. Well, I had a break in there. So I would say it's probably six years of training. What is your training regiment like now? I'll be 70 in uh, August. So I'm competing as a 70-year-old this year. I start the day in the Skylark pool, which you know well. Every morning I'm in the water by 5, 5.15, and I've been increasing my mileage, so I try to knock out about 3,000 meters in the mornings. This week I cut it back a little bit because I'm getting ready to compete tomorrow. And then I ride in the afternoon. My job allows me to ride, so I can go out and usually try to get in on the bike by 10, 10.30, and I'm able to put in anywhere from 20 to 30 miles during the week. During the week. And then when I ride with Captain McKenna, 
on the weekends and that's when we really hit it hard and we increased the distances so we ride 30 up to 50 miles hard and this time of the year in the second Sunday of every month we do 40k time trials that's about 25 miles so we do the Castroville time trials and then I'll compete in the aqua bike events that I can get to that work in my schedule so there's this one there's a couple more and then the big one is in July in Copenhagen yeah, how did you tell me about qualifying for this and tell me about this event? There's two ways you qualify as an age grouper in the sport of triathlon or aqua bike, and that's you go to the national championships, and if you place, I guess it's in, I think it's in the top 16, you automatically qualify. Well, not everybody is going to go, especially because of the cost of going to a foreign country. The other way is, in your age group, is to be one of the top ones. So in my age group for the last five years, I've won my age group three times and I was second twice. So I've qualified for the world championships ever since they've had them. Just I didn't go last year because personal reasons. Um, this year I'm able to go. That's very impressive. <laughs> Thanks. Are you excited? I'm getting more excited. You know, more background than we're gonna get into here, but it's been hard to focus, you know, with the uh, loss of my wife. So my training has been uh, intermittent and probably not as focused as I like it to be. I think I'm in pretty good shape, but I've had a tough time focusing. Yeah, so we started out by mentioning that this is going to be the first time in nine years that your wife, who is not with us, Cordy, passed away. Eight weeks ago. Eight weeks ago. Just eight weeks ago. And we had a beautiful memorial last weekend, last Saturday. So my typical question to those I interview is, what was the hardest period or the darkest period of your life? So I'll ask that because I feel like that's an appropriate time to do that. Out of all the, the years, what do you think was the hardest, the darkest, the kind of the loneliest times you've experienced? There are three. I had a large ranch operation in Iowa. It was a family partnership. It was a big operation, about 4,000 acres. We raised hog, cattle, corn, soybeans, hay, had lots of horses. It was a, a big operation. It was, a, it was with my mother-in-law's second husband who basically went a little bit nuts and sued me to get out of the partnership. So as a result of that, I lost my home, I lost my income, I mean, I kind of almost lost my identity because I was so wrapped up into that. And we had to move off of the place, buy another home, it eventually led to my divorce. So it was, it was a big loss of a whole bunch of important things to me. And I was floundering around trying to figure out what to do, but whatever I have, made me, you know, they call it cowboy up, man. When you get thrown off, you dust yourself up, look around, climb back on, and keep going. So I had the ability to do that, so I got through. But prior to that, the, the darkest one was getting taken off of the Olympic team um, by a black officer who did not like white folks. He really didn't like me. So when people talk about racism and discrimination, I can tell you that it goes both ways. We don't have a corner on the market being racist. Anybody can do that. And I was a victim of that. 
And it took me a long time before I could look back and laugh about that experience. So today, I, mean, I just say, well, that was my Olympic experience. I got on the team and got to Montreal and got told to go home. The most recent one, and probably the most devastating, is the loss of my wife. Can you tell me a little bit about Montreal? Well, this guy was named Don Johnson. He was a lieutenant colonel in charge of the Modern Pentathlon Training Center. He was the OIC. He charged me with Article 89 under the UCMJ, which is disrespect to a superior commissioned officer because I asked him a question about getting me some fencing shoes. We had recently been in Germany. He went to the Adidas factory and got all the guys' fencing shoes except for me. That's how much he didn't like me. He said, well, they didn't have your size at the factory. I said, you're kidding me. They don't have my size of shoe, 12? Nope, didn't have any. I didn't believe him. So he was having a meeting with the people that were going to start running the, the national championships, all the coaches and everything. I happened to see him. It's an open bay. I walked by there. I stood in the doorway until he recognized me. He said, Captain Greenwell, can you see him having a meeting? I said, yes, sir but I really need my fencing shoes. The competition's less than two weeks away and I can't fence in the old ones. And the supply sergeant raises his hand and he says, hey, Orb, we have your size downstairs in supply. Mm -hmm. So they were there all the time, he just wouldn't tell me. So because of that, I had to go through an Article 32 hearing. After about three hours of testimony from the coaches and all the people that were present at that meeting, he threw it out. He said, man, you got a bad deal, get out of here. So then I had to go to federal court with a lawyer to get a restraining order to put me back on the team. I got that, flew to Montreal with my lawyer, and I got to the Olympic Village, but because I didn't get credentials, because I didn't go through with the team, I couldn't get into the Olympic Village, which is where the order for the order of draw started. So once that starts, the competition is official. So Colonel Johnson came out of the Olympic Village and he said, guess what, the order of draw has just taken place and you can't participate. Within an hour, I got a message from the Pentagon from somebody in my career field, my branch, said, Captain, you can either take leave or go back to San Antonio, Fort Sam. My parents were up there, and because I didn't have any tickets to any of the other venues, I didn't have a place to stay, I ended up coming back here. And that was basically how that experience went for me. It took me a long time to get over it. That one was easy when I look at the death of my wife. That's been the most difficult one to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, tell, tell me about this recent one, both of those events are significant, but both occurred a long time ago. Cordy's passing away is different and affected you differently. Yeah, because she was my soulmate. She was the one. You know, that one I'd always hoped to find, finally did. Um, we did everything together. Uh, sometimes we just sit, like you heard Frank say, we could sit for an hour. Don't have to say a word, but just comfort in knowing that we're there. You know, that she's there for me, I'm there for her. What was difficult about that when she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer back in December of 2016, it was a steady decline. You know, there was a massive hysterectomy, then the chemo on top of the cancer. But both of those things were killing her. 
and she went through all of the hair loss and she did not at one point have a hair on her body. Remember that beautiful long black hair? It's beautiful. So it took a long time. As you're going through that, I think I became a little bit numb to it. And watching that strong, beautiful, athletic woman just wither away was difficult. But when she finally went into hospice and passed, it was still crushing. I thought that, okay, I've been dealing with this for a long time, it wouldn't be so intense, but it was. It still is, it still hurts. That's a, the toughest one. The, the loss of my father, not so bad. My mom's 98, she's, I don't know how much time she has. That won't be as tough as this one because of the relationship that we had built. It's still pretty fresh and pretty raw. So it gets back to whatever that quality that people have that allow them to push forward, it's starting to surface again. I know that I will go on, that eventually I'll pursue a relationship. Cordy and I talked about it, very, she was very blunt about it, that, you know, you're not going to be just some old guy out there being a hermit. You know, one thing she said, just don't get involved with any floozies, <laughs> she said. So that'll happen. Um, when? When I'm ready? I don't know. I, you can't put a timeline on, okay, tomorrow I'm going to go date. That's, I'm not, I can't do that. But I know that, that I'll be okay because I've had some terrible experiences and the experience of the past teaches me anything, it's that I'll be okay. And that's just, you don't have to have that, that drive as an athlete to be okay. People handle it in different ways because I've had some horrible things happen and I've been okay. I'll turn out fine. Does it feel like you're over the hump or you're still in it? This past week I had some days where I thought I'm getting closer. Then I'll do something, I'll hear a song, I'll be looking at some of her things. I just got the nerve to go through her purse the other day because I needed to find another truck key and that was pretty emotional. You just never know when it's going to hit, like this morning. I can't control it. You don't need to. So, yeah, I don't try to control that. And if the tears come, I don't try to fight it. I just go with the flow and you get through it. One of the last times we talked, I talked with her. Uh, it was in this room right here. This was before she went to hospice care. We probably talked for an hour and she sounded as grounded and as rational as anybody could be. She took the role of comforting other people and reassuring that everything is going to be okay. And the way she rationalized that, look, I know I have this condition. Um, I may or may not live. I may or may not have a lot of time. I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to, everything they tell me to do. And if it doesn't work, then I have to accept it. But it wasn't in a way that was complaining or pitying herself. It was in a very compassionate and wise and grounded way. And I just, I, I rehearsed that conversation over and over again in my head. It really struck me just how grounded and balanced she was. She had an inner strength as strong as I've ever known in anyone. Cordy was concerned about other people. She was other-directed. A lot of my athletic career, I've been self-directed. 
You know, it's all about me. It's all about what I need to compete or get ready or blah, blah, blah. Cordy's always been about other people in her life, and you heard a lot of that last Saturday. She told her good friends, Donna and Teresa, you make sure Orb takes care of himself. You know, she was concerned about me all along. She's not so much about her. Where that strength and inner beauty came from, that's just something that she had. We'd all be better off if we had that. So, yeah, she was, I think she was, you know how pretty she was. Beautiful. She was so beautiful. More beautiful on the inside. What I'm learning to accept is that uh, I'm just blessed to have the time I had with her. And I'm still not accepting that real well. Amazing lady. Amazing. Yeah. You know, she had lots of friends and you know, that smile of hers. I don't know what else to say except uh, left a big hole in here. But as I said earlier, you know, time will take me to wherever I'm supposed to get. I have no idea where that is today, but I'll get where I'm supposed to go sometime. So, you know, they say take it a day at a time, so that's what I try to do, and who knows, you know, it's uh, get on down the trail and see where it goes. Is there something that you can recommend for people who are going through tough times, who are struggling? I know you are struggling, you're obviously going through a difficult period in your life. Don't fight the grief. Talk about it. I have a lot of good friends, including my brother and my daughter especially, that I talk about it with. You know, it's not something I try to pretend didn't happen. I talk to Mike McKenna a lot about it. I mean, talking really does help. I've thought about grief support groups, but I'm not sure that it would provide much more than what I'm getting now. Have something to focus on. Cordy and I agreed that I should not retire. I could have done that a long time ago. So I have students to focus on. I enjoy training them. I like to see their progress. I like the success that they get when they come through the program and they are successful and I have my training. So I have some good things to focus on. You know, the, the training is good for me physically, keeps me moving, keeps me active. So focus on some good stuff. If you just sit around and have a pity party, that's not good. Yeah, and so what you're saying is do do process, do, do grief if you need to. Yes. But, but don't over-focus or hyper-focus on No. So... You know, I've done some of that this morning when we've been talking. Yeah. Uh, just go with it and focus on some positive things and don't, you know, it's easy to turn to negative stuff, the availability of drugs and alcohol, you know, leave that stuff alone and do something positive for yourself. I think it would be for people who have let themselves go and then they get into a situation like this, it's time to say, okay. I need to do something different to 
better participate in the life that I have left. So you can take these devastating experiences and really turn them around. I don't know if everybody does that. Maybe it's, maybe it's the same kind of drive, you know. You know, in the infantry they have an old expression, drive on. So I'm driving on. I think most of the days I'm driving forward, but sometimes I'm driving backwards or I'm stuck. And that's okay. But basically I'm moving forward. Having this interview has helped me move forward, talk about all the experiences, where I've been. It's positive. Hopefully it will help other people as well learn something. You know, if during the ceremony, I mentioned, and so did Frank, that the last lesson, that I got was from Cordy when she said it's going by too fast. That really drove home for me the, uh, what I see is if you have something you need to say to somebody, a family member, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a, a co-worker uh, that you've wanted to say, say it because you never know when you might not have a chance. It might be gone. So that was a real good lesson. Gotta say it. Her last words to you were, I love you, it went by so fast. That was it. There was no verbal communication after that. She could squeeze my hand. It's funny, I'd be holding her right hand and I'd say, Cordy, squeeze my hand. And she would squeeze with her left hand. So she knew I was there, sort of. Yeah, you know, one of the things that women complain about most about men is we don't listen and we don't communicate. I complain about it. <laughs> yeah. Because men are the fixers, you know. Tell me your problem, and you just want to talk about it, and I want to fix it. Um, you know, we need to learn just to be in the moment, to listen and communicate. She taught me a lot about that. If you have any ladies out there that listen to this stuff, my advice to them is don't try to fix the guy in your life. You know, don't date him because you think he's a good catch. And there's these little things that uh, you may not like, some idiosyncrasies, some habits, and you think, well, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do to catch him and get married, and then once we're married, I'll fix him. That won't work. Cordy never tried to fix me. She let me be me. You know, I could say stupid stuff. I could act dumb. And she'd just grin and not chastise me never tried to fix me and you know if, if your guy wants to be a special operator or a policeman or a fireman or you know be a logger or go into an industry that's dangerous you need to support him in doing that if you resist him and don't let him do what he wants to do as long as it's you know a legal viable career don't get in his way support him 
and your marriage and your relationship will flourish. You know, my first wife. I'm taking notes. <laughs> when, uh, when I was so distraught after taking off the Olympic team, one of her comments was, because this was a big deal in San Antonio. It was on the nightly news. I had cameramen burst into my house and put the lights on me and run me on the evening news. I mean, and I was crying then. Um, one of her comments was, what's the big deal? It's just mm. modern pentathlon, and who mm. knows about it anyway? Mm. She didn't know you. She didn't understand you. Well, she was part of it, but that's what she really thought about it in the end. Mm -hmm. why, why is this such a big deal? Mm. I said, well, you try, try making an Olympic team and getting taken off and see how you feel. Yeah, let your guy do what he needs to do. And on the same token, if you get abused, get out. But I'm not saying anything new there. Is there something else that I'm not asking you that you wanted to share? I know you have stories after stories after stories, and they're all very interesting. We talk a lot about goal setting. You know, whether it's to get up in the morning and make your bed right away, mm -hmm. accomplish something, have some goals. Um, I'm lucky I have those goals in training the students, um, in my own training, I've got competitions to look forward to, uh, whatever it is. My goal out here is I like to work in this yard, grow the garden. In fact, I started planting the garden on March 18th. That was in the, the day that Cordy died. And so when I go work in there, I have memories of her. Um, but the positive goals, plan those things. Don't just say, oh, well, woe is me and give up. You know, we're here for a purpose. Figure out what your purpose is and go for it. Drive on. Well, awesome. Figure out what the purpose and drive on. Thank you so much for this interview. Really Thank you for allowing me to chat. Of course, I what enjoyed a it. Yeah, me too. All right. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully, you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice, and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners, and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mil at mail dot mil.